Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. In a bid to ease the burden of rising gas prices, President Biden today announced the biggest ever release of U.S. emergency oil reserves. What will the long-term impacts be and will it lower gas costs in the near future? As Hunter Biden's banking records reach the Senate floor this week, some are saying Hunter Biden may have broken quite a number of laws. NTD takes a closer look into what's at stake. The State Department is offering the X gender marker on passports. Americans can begin to apply April 11th without having to show any medical documentation. A January 6th defendant took his own life in February. He went to the Capitol that day and was later charged with a felony for a crime he said he didn't commit. His aunt spoke to NTD's The Nation Speaks. President Biden today announcing his new plan to ease prices at the pump, an unprecedented release of emergency oil. The plan is to release one million barrels every day for the next six months. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the details. President Biden is facing mounting pressure to relieve Americans of their pain at the pump. His solution, release stockpiled oil now that will need to be replaced later. And the bottom line is if we want lower gas prices, we need to have a more oil supply right now. He's authorized a historic release of our emergency oil, a total of around 180 million barrels. That's a million barrels per day to be released over the next half year. So how much will it help you and how soon could you expect to get some relief? Experts say it will lower the price by cents, but it could take some time to see this $4 national average get lower. It, it will have an, an impact. I think it'll be incremental. And I think it'll be potentially a little smaller. But some aren't as optimistic, warning of the long-term implications of such a massive oil release. Can you just explain what you mean by in the short term it could backfire? Do you mean price-wise or do you just mean reducing the domestic production of oil? Price-wise because, you know, because again, it could create logistical problems. We've never released that much, you know, onto the market right away. And so that could cause backups in the Gulf, which would in turn ha have... U.S. oil producers actually have to pull back on production. Biden and Democrats on Capitol Hill have pointed fingers at oil and gas companies, accusing them of price gouging. There is very interest in our caucus in stopping price gouging on the part of the of the uh, industry. The accusation started coming to a head when the price of oil fell, but the price of gas wasn't falling in tandem. Two energy experts told me they aren't buying the price gouging argument. Here's why. It doesn't make any sense in a commodity market, whether we're talking about sugar, copper, oil, natural gas. Just because the price of oil goes down right away doesn't mean the price of the pump goes down right away because they already pre-bought that and so they're not going to lose money on it. Biden's long-term strategy to solve the high gas prices is to reduce our dependence on oil altogether. We and the whole world need to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels altogether. We need to end our long-term reliance on China and other countries for inputs that will power the future. The president also announced today he's planning to use the Defense Production Act to support the production and processing of materials like lithium that are needed to make green energy products. The goal is to make us more energy independent as we move towards renewable energy. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Drivers are not the only ones hurt by high oil prices. Farmers who use a lot of diesel fuel are also feeling the pinch. What does that mean for food prices? NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Until February, diesel had been under $4 a gallon for almost eight years, but that trend has now been broken. Prices have almost doubled and increased to nearly $5 a gallon for diesel. That has definitely made an impact on our operation. Ryan Goodman is a cattle farmer who uses diesel to deliver hay and inspect his cows. You know, if diesel fuel and, and gasoline fuel prices remain high for an extended amount of time, it could have an incremental increase on food prices. The latest data shows diesel prices rising steadily from the beginning of the year and then surging after the conflict started in Ukraine. While gasoline is generally used for cars, diesel fuel is generally used for more industrial vehicles, such as those used in farming. Many different farmers that are raising crops and, and are out in the fields 
And uh, these higher fuel prices are impacting everyone. You know, for a lot of them, it's the start of the growing season and they're getting ready to start planting. Bob Bilbrook is the CEO of Capture, a business consultancy. Bilbrook's family once owned a fueling company and he's surprised diesel costs are rising like this. Diesel fuel is heavier and less volatile than gasoline, which makes it simpler to refine from crude oil, which is usually why the refinery has less labor and other costs involved. Diesel is more efficient than gasoline because it has more power in every gallon. However, diesel-powered vehicles tend to cost more. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Banking transactions between Hunter Biden and Chinese Communist Party-linked companies were unveiled this week. Is the investigation into the president's son heating up? NTD's Jason Perry has the story. There is no middleman in this transaction. This is $100,000 from what is effectively an arm of the communist Chinese government direct to Hunter Biden. This week, Senator Chuck Grassley and Senator Ron Johnson presented newly released banking records on the Senate floor, which show specific million-dollar transactions made from CEFC China Energy to Hunter Biden. CEFC China Energy, like many other large companies in China, had a Chinese Communist Party cell within the company. After the newly released banking transactions were made public, major news outlets such as CBS, ABC, and CNN are reporting with unnamed sources that the investigation of Hunter Biden is expanding to see if he violated money laundering, tax, and foreign lobbying laws. We have been unable to verify the claim that the investigation of Hunter Biden is intensifying. We also reached out to the Justice Department for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Earlier this week, Senator Ron Johnson spoke in front of a recently uncovered million-dollar wire transfer between a Chinese Communist Party-linked company and Hunter Biden. Johnson keyed in on part of an audio clip that was extracted from Hunter Biden's laptop, in which Hunter referred to Patrick Ho, his former business partner. Hunter Biden knew exactly who he was dealing with. He knew exactly who he was dealing with. He was dealing with the, quote, expletive deleted spy chief of China. Now, that fact should alert the media and our Democrat colleagues to seriously consider the implications the Biden family's vast web of foreign financial entanglements have in the conduct of this administration's foreign policy and our national security. But I'm not holding my breath. In 2019, Hunter Biden's former business partner, Patrick Ho, was arrested and sentenced to three years in prison for his role in a multi-million dollar scheme to bribe top officials in Uganda and Chad in exchange for business advantages for CEFC China Energy. Jason Perry, NTD News. Americans will soon be able to choose the ex-gender marker on their passports instead of male or female. The State Department says this is to better serve all U.S. citizens regardless of their gender identity. Starting on April 11th, U.S. citizens will be able to select an X as their gender marker on their U.S. passport application, and the option will become available for other forms of documentation next year. The department is setting a precedent as the first federal government agency to offer the X gender marker on an identity document. The State Department says applicants can self-select their gender and don't have to submit any medical documentation, even if their selected gender is different from their other citizenship or identity documents. This does not apply to U.S. visas for foreigners. The department says the definition of the ex-gender marker will be unspecified or another gender identity. They say this definition is respectful of individuals' privacy while advancing inclusion. Secretary of State Antony Blinken first announced the plan last June. And the events of January 6 have etched an indelible mark on the American psyche in radically different ways. For some January 6 defendants, faith in the justice system has been severely damaged. NTD's The Nation Speaks interviews the aunt of defendant Matthew Perna, who took his life on February 25th. The January 6 event has polarized American opinion to this day. Yet both sides hold a common belief in the sanctity of American justice. But one defendant, Matthew Perna, believed that justice had become severely damaged. As he waited to be sentenced for a crime he said he didn't commit, Perna took his life on February 25. NTD's The Nation Speaks spoke to Jerry Perna, Matthew's aunt. 
She says that Matthew went to the rally hoping to celebrate another term with President Donald Trump. But the circumstances of that day led to him being charged with a misdemeanor, which later became a felony. And Matt got extremely concerned at that point. His attorney kept saying, don't worry, I've got this, almost in disbelief maybe. Um, and that's when the nightmare really began. He just sunk deeper and deeper into depression. And he was suicidal for the better part of the year. And there was just nothing we could say. According to Jerry, days before Matthew's sentencing, the hearing was postponed. She believes the judge was being influenced to increase the sentence. And um, Matt, at that point, was he called me on the phone, and um, he was just so distraught. He was sobbing, just sobbing on the phone. Matthew's sentencing hearing was postponed until April 1st. Before that day could arrive, Matthew hung himself in his garage. Jerry says she blames the media and Facebook for hate speech and the way Matthew felt. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. You can catch the full interview on The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drucker at Saturday, 11 a.m., right here on NTD News. And up next, New York's public library got rid of the overdraft fees for late books. Now tens of thousands of books are coming in, some from the World War II era. And in D.C., five fetuses were found during a raid on a Capitol Hill house. An anti-abortion activist was occupying the house. That and more on NTD News. Have you ever borrowed a book from the library but then forgot to return it? Besides the guilt of returning it long after it's due, there's also an overdraft fee. For one reason or another, some books simply don't get returned at all. Well, New York's public libraries found a solution to that. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from one of the libraries. Last fall, New York's public libraries got rid of their overdraft fee for borrowed books. After that, tens of thousands of books started to come back. Some of them were borrowed decades ago. We've had some books that were due back in the 50s, so somebody checked these books out, and you know, at this point, 70 years ago. Billy Parrott is the director of one of New York's public libraries. He accepts the fact that the library lost a dollar or two after getting rid of the fines. He just wants to fill the empty spots. I'm of the mindset of putting people over profit. So there is, you know, if we have fines, there is some revenue generated from that. But the most important thing we do is offering these resources to the public. The overdraft fee used to be 25 cents per day, but was capped at $12 max. So was it really the money that hindered people from bringing the books back? I think sometimes subconsciously when somebody realizes that they've kept a book past, you know, longer than they're supposed to, there is that kind of like guilt. Um, and we would just want people to realize that we understand things happen. He also showed me some of the books that haven't been back at the library for decades. So this was a book that was due back in May of 1976. It's a book on how to double your child's grades in school. Some of the information might be good, but this might be more of a historical book now. As again, the information on here is probably outdated. If you have a book to return but feel guilty about doing so, you can also just send it through the mail. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. With so many jobs available, getting hired is supposed to be easy. But not if you start by failing the drug test. A new study shows positive drug tests among U.S. workers are at their highest level in decades. NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. Positive rates for marijuana went up 9% from 2020 to 2021. And positive drug tests overall are at a 20-year high. Two out of three American adults struggle with loneliness. It's really, it's the fastest growing epidemic on our planet. I spoke with human connections expert, Uni Turretini. She says the CCP virus pandemic only made things worse. So there's a lot of uh, disconnection. There's a lot of distrust. And distrust fuels uh, loneliness, which again fuels addiction. Ira Wolf runs a recruitment firm that helps hundreds of companies hire new workers. I'm not sure we would be talking about it if there weren't labor shortages. 
Wolf says every time we are short on workers, employers lower the bar and lower the screening requirements. Each time we've already lost two, in, two of our big clients because they've said we just can't afford to test anybody. We're going to essentially hire warm bodies and people who can fog a mirror. Wolf says many companies still have zero tolerance for drug use. But it's getting hard because drugs like marijuana have been legalized in up to 18 states now. And I think it's always better and more satisfying for each one of us to have connection with other people than with substances. Positive rates for cocaine use also went up by 5% from 2020 to 2021. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. Police say they made a shocking discovery in Washington, D.C. during a raid this week. They confirmed that they found five fetuses in a home they say was occupied by an anti-abortion activist. The D.C. Office of the Chief Medical Examiner collected the remains. Local Washington, D.C. station WUSA 9 reported on the incident. They say the home was occupied by anti-abortion activist Lauren Handy. She was reportedly indicted by a federal grand jury on Wednesday, along with nine other people. She's accused of felony conspiring against rights because she was allegedly part of a blockade inside a D.C. abortion clinic in October 2020. Handy founded the anti-abortion group Mercy Missions and reportedly has a history of legal issues. During a discussion at the Heritage Foundation, one gentleman explained a popular picture that many have seen on the Internet. The picture supposedly shows the difference between equality and equity. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. If you're in a classroom, for example... Ian Rowe got... is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academy, which is a new network of high schools in the Bronx. In a discussion at the Heritage Foundation, he explained critical race theory by alluding to a popular picture many have seen on the Internet. In the picture, three people of different heights are watching a baseball game. The picture supposedly shows the difference between equality and equity. Marxist ideology is from each according to their ability to each according to the need. And so who is this person that is, or who is this government who's deciding, well, you have the privilege, and so therefore I'm going to take away resources from you. In the equality frame, each person gets a box, but not everyone can see the baseball game on one box. And in the equity frame, the boxes are rearranged so each person can see the game. He explained what's behind this concept of equity. He then explained what is wrong about the idea. If you're in a classroom, for example, if you've got 20 different learners, you have to differentiate instruction so that each child does get different kinds of support, but not for the purpose of achieving an equal outcome, but ensure that each child has access and an equal opportunity. And that's where the critical race theory, in my view, um, ideology just completely falls down. You can't achieve equal outcomes unless you're somehow got some overwhelming force, a um, neo-Marxist force, that's making, making these decisions. And that's the antithesis of what we want to build in our country. A phrase he used when he was running for school board was equality of opportunity, individual dignity, and our common humanity. He says it gives courage to others. Jason Perry, NTD News. And in the state of Illinois, people are voting with their feet. Recent census data shows that Illinois follows only New York and California in population loss due to out-migration. A record number of people are saying goodbye to Illinois, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. The state lost more than 100,000 people due to outmigration from July 2020 to July 2021, the largest decline in the last eight years. Bryce Hill, senior research analyst with the Illinois Policy Institute, explains why. The overwhelming majority do so for labor and housing market-related reasons. Compared to other areas, buying a house in Illinois is comparably more affordable. But where we become unaffordable is because we have the second highest property taxes in the nation. So for recent home buyers, uh, property taxes are often the equivalent of seven additional mortgage payments. Moreover, Illinois job market growth has trailed the national average. It took the state almost eight years to recover from the Great Recession of 2008. Olga Aronoff is uprooting her entire family with both pairs of in-laws. They are moving from Illinois to Colorado. 
We're graduating um, Illinois uh, as a family, um, personally, um, economically, and politically. On the personal side, Colorado has been the family's favorite vacation spot, but that's not the only reason they're leaving. Economically, um, it's been getting more and more expensive to live here. Uh, we've been over 22 years, we've been watching the, the taxes rising. She also attributes their departure to the political environment. We want to feel that we can speak up what we think and feel, whereas here we, we felt a little bit muted. Population loss has a negative impact on Illinois politically and economically. And the impact of population decline is felt everywhere and is creating a negative feedback loop. Congress, Illinois lost a congressional seat after the last census, uh, so it gives Illinoisans less of a say in Washington. Uh, we've seen uh, taxes, property taxes, income taxes increase as fewer people live here. Fewer people lead to fewer job creators. Businesses will find fewer clients and fewer employees. Hill says Illinois public policy is the biggest hindrance to solving these problems. We have a severely cumbersome regulatory code, uh, and we also have extremely high taxes. Hill is calling on the Illinois government to foster an environment of affordable housing and to reform its pension system to reduce tax burdens on the public. Moving on to sports news, Tampa Bay head coach Bruce Arians abruptly retired Wednesday night. The shocking announcement comes just weeks after superstar quarterback Tom Brady flip-flopped and announced his own return. Arians, who will turn 70 this year, coached Brady and the team to a Super Bowl win just over a year ago. Brady's sudden return made the Bucks a popular Super Bowl pick. Arians was Tampa Bay's head coach for the last three seasons. Previous to that, he held the same position with Arizona for five years before retiring due to medical concerns. The Buccaneers have announced that defensive coordinator Todd Bowles will be promoted to head coach. Bowles was previously the New York Jets head coach from 2015 through 2018. Country music star and apparent UNC fanatic Eric Church has canceled his concert this Saturday so he can watch his beloved Tar Heels play Duke at the Final Four instead. Though ticket holders have been offered refunds, many have voiced disappointment at the timing. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Eric Church, like any avid North Carolina or Duke fan, wants to see their historic matchup this weekend in New Orleans. But Church had a prior engagement, his own sold-out concert in San Antonio, so he canceled it. Church, whose 2009 album was titled Carolina, released a statement to ticket holders via Ticketmaster, calling it the most selfish thing he's asked of his fans. Fans on Twitter generally agreed. Said one Twitter user, if Eric Church really believed in the Tar Heels, he would never have scheduled a show during the Final Four to begin with. Another one tweeted, tell your friend Eric Church he owes me 460 bucks for my hotel in San Antonio. Yet another one pointed out that Foo Fighters lead singer Dave Grohl once broke his leg during a concert, yet still finished his performance, while Church canceled his because he wanted to watch a game. Some sports fans, though, understood his move. Said one such fanatic, the opportunity to watch your alma mater destroy your arch enemy at the worst and most injurious possible time only comes once in a lifetime. The confluence of events that placed the first ever Duke Carolina matchup in the NCAA tournament on the grand stage of the Final Four in what could be Coach K's last game has made this a must-see event. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Amid the war in Ukraine, the Union of European Football Associations, or UEFA, has stripped Russia of hosting this year's Champions League soccer final in St. Petersburg and banned Russian teams from European competitions. But Russian soccer authorities say the teams and their fans should not be punished over political affairs. NTD's Chenny Wu has the story. At the FIFA Congress on Thursday, President Gianni Infantino said that he hopes the conflict in Ukraine can end soon. And he also brought up Russia's exclusion from the World Cup soccer tournament. We had to suspend Russia and Russian teams from uh, uh, participations. It's not an easy decision, of course not, because it's about people who love football. 
UEFA President Alexander Cheferin declined to answer questions about Russian soccer. In response, Russian soccer administrator Alexei Sorokin says that soccer teams should not be held responsible for their country's political decisions. He also expressed disappointment that the hosting of this year's Champions League final had been taken away from St. Petersburg. What, what does Russian football have to do with, with all this? Or what, what has Russian football done wrong? Russian soccer clubs and national teams have been suspended from FIFA and UEFA competitions due to the war in Ukraine and denied the chance to qualify for this year's World Cup finals through the European playoffs. We were preparing for the Champions League final and it was taken away. And again, we deeply regret that there is a whole team of my colleagues who have been spent three years of their time preparing the best Champions League final. The Russian Football Union has appealed the suspension to the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne, Switzerland. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The state of California is looking to pay farmers not to plant thousands of acres of land as part of a $2.9 billion plan. The goal is to help restore the habitat in one of North America's largest estuaries. State, federal officials and several water agencies signed the agreement on Tuesday which would result in 35,000 acres of rice fields left unused. According to the California Rice Commission, this is about 6% of California's annual crop. The Bay Delta Water Quality Control Plan aims at letting more water flow through the state's major rivers and streams. This, combined with other measures, can increase water flow through the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta up to an extra 824,000 acre-feet of water per year. One acre foot of water is more than 325,000 gallons, usually enough to supply two households a year. Some environmental groups are in opposition. The Associated Press reported that, according to Doug Obeji, a senior attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council, the extra water would be about half of what state regulators previously said was needed to fully protect the environment. The agreement was negotiated privately between the Newsom administration and some of the state's biggest water agencies, AP reports. The funds will come from state and federal governments and the water agencies. Coming up after the break, a convoy protesting presidential emergency powers is now turning its focus to where it started, California. This time, the convoy has a different goal in mind. And an ex-member of the Manson family was denied parole again by the California governor. More in just a moment here on NTD News. People's Convoy, a group of truckers that set off from California, is on its way back. But they're not returning from their protest. They're shifting gear to protest nearly a dozen bills in the state legislation. NTD's Daniel Hall has the list. What do you all think about heading to California? Truckers protesting the Biden administration's reluctance to give up its pandemic emergency powers are now heading to California. Mike Landis, a lead trucker and spokesperson for the People's Convoy, said during a weekend announcement that they are rolling out to protest nearly a dozen bills in the state. We're not done here, but we'll go to California and raise awareness on this along the way and hopefully gain more people like we did on our way here. Landis listed out 10 bills that the group will protest, one of which has already been pulled back. Assembly Bill 1993, whose author decided to hold the bill back on Tuesday, would have required every employee and independent contractor to provide proof of vaccination. Other assembly bills included AB 1797, which would give government agencies full access to vaccine records of all people, and AB 2098, which would punish medical professionals for providing COVID information contrary to health officials. Landis also listed seven Senate bills. SB 1390 similarly calls for a ban on information, prohibiting people from making statements that the government deems untrue or misleading, including online and in advertising. 
SB 920 would allow the state medical board to inspect doctors' offices and medical records without patient consent. SB 1464 sets requirements for law enforcement agencies to enforce public health guidelines or lose funding. The remaining four Senate bills targeted school children. SB 871 would require COVID jabs for children to attend public school, and SB 866 allows minors over 12 years old to give consent to receiving jabs. SB 1479 requires long-term testing in schools and has results reported to the California Department of Public Health. And SB 1184 would allow school health personnel to disclose a child's medical information to third parties without parental consent. And we need to stop stuff like these bills from getting in place. Otherwise, the rest of us that don't live in California are going to end up subject to the same situation. So the problem with this is, is these bills aren't very well known. The nine bills that are still active are up for vote next week. This is a type of nonsense that creates a tyrannical government. This is a type of nonsense that's going to keep us from being free people. Landis summarized the trucker's mission as opposing government tyranny. The mission was to come here and get this emergency declaration repealed so we can go by our constitution and hold these people accountable for ruining everybody's lives for the last couple years and get back to the way this country is supposed to be and end the tyranny that's going on in our government. Brian Brossi, another lead trucker, confirmed via text message to the Epic Times on March 28th that the People's Convoy is planning to head to California. Los Angeles voted on Wednesday to drop the proof of vaccination mandate to enter indoor establishments and large outdoor events. The requirement still stands for certain venues. NTD's Eileen Ang has the story. Let's open the roll. Close the roll and tabulate the vote. 13 ayes, 1 no. The Los Angeles City Council voted 13 to 1 to remove the proof of COVID-19 vaccination mandate for indoor facilities after seeing a lower infection rate. Council President Nuri Martinez introduced the motion. Individual businesses can still decide whether or not to require proof of vaccination from patrons. Councilman Mike Bonin was the only one who opposed. At a city council meeting last week, he said he was concerned the virus would spread again. Uh, I know it feels like we're out of the woods. It feels like we're all going back to normal. Uh, but there's new variants and new strains all the time. This BA2 is, is, is spreading. And we really don't know what the variant a month from now or two months from now are. And so uh, for, for me personally, I'd like to see us keep the, the vaccination requirement. Previously, the mandate required those 12 and older to show proof of vaccination to be in indoor restaurants, gyms, recreational facilities, personal care establishments, and some city buildings. It was also required for outdoor events with 5,000 or more people. Workers at healthcare facilities will still need a vaccination verification or a negative test. The measure would take effect as soon as the mayor signs it. A former follower of Charles Manson was recommended for parole for the fifth time recently. She's imprisoned for her involvement in a murder of a husband and wife nearly 50 years ago. While her lawyer says her record is spotless, Governor Gavin Newsom denied her on Tuesday. NTD's Jason Blair has that story. Former Manson family member Leslie Van Houten was denied parole again on Tuesday by California Governor Gavin Newsom. The ex-follower of Charles Manson is serving a life sentence for her involvement in the murder of a Los Angeles grocer and his wife in 1969. Newsom said in his parole review that Van Houten currently poses an unreasonable danger to society if released from prison at this time. This is the fifth time that Van Houten has been denied parole by a California governor. Van Houten's lawyer, Rich Pfeiffer, argued that his client has a spotless disciplinary prison record and accused Newsom of making a decision based on concern for his political future. The Manson family was led by Charles Manson and is often described as being a cult, commune, and gang wrapped up in one. The group was responsible for numerous murders, including Hollywood actress Sharon Tate. The group got its start in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco during the peak of the Summer of Love movement in 1967. Manson rented a house in the neighborhood where he lived with his first followers. 
Manson died in prison of natural causes in 2017. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. Coming up, turn the page on the old playbook. That's what the top U.S. trade negotiator is saying today as she signals a sterner approach to trade disputes with China. We'll take a look at why it matters. Grocery store shelves are near empty as locals stock up on food. Shanghai is entering its second phase of lockdowns and it will impact some 16 million residents. That and more after the break. Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. In China, Shanghai is entering the second phase of its lockdown. They'll lock down the western part of the city, which has around 16 million residents. How are locals holding up under the strict measures? Here's NTD's Don Ma. This is the most severe lockdown in China since 2020. Empty streets, roads and freeways are reminiscent of when the city of Wuhan went into lockdown. Similar things are happening again in Shanghai. Residents emptied shelves and hoarded groceries ahead of the lockdown. Long lines formed at some supermarkets in the Puxi area. And those who didn't stock up are suffering. An international student currently stuck at home says he's running low on food. Let's take a look at my supplies. I still have some, some cereals left. Uh, not much, but some fruits. I only have this lemon. Um, I have some flour, uh, but um, unfortunately the milk is expired so I can't make pancakes, uh, maybe with water. So my supplies are extremely scarce. Like I feed mostly on things that have been left by my roommates, previous roommates who moved out and they forgot to throw away like some, you know, leftover pasta like that was left in a bag or some uh, old instant noodles, those kind of things. There are very few people out and about in the city of 26 million, as most are trapped in their homes. And you are like in a cage. I just woke up and my compound was surrounded with the fence, and that's it. There was no announcement, um, there was no warning, no information, nothing. By Wednesday, the third day of the lockdown, some 9 million people had to undergo mandatory virus testing. When they do the PCR test, they just like hit your door and yell something in Chinese, which I don't even understand. Like once they did it at 1 a.m. in the morning, so I got really scared like at night. Uh. The lockdown is in two phases to limit disruptions, but still many businesses were shuttered. Volkswagen said Thursday will halt work at its factory between April 1st and 5th. Tesla will also reportedly continue to suspend factory operations. Locking down a major city like Shanghai full-scale would result in a 4% reduction in China's GDP, or a loss of over $700 billion, according to some economists at several Chinese universities. Don Ma, NTD News. The top U.S. trade representative says it's time for the U.S. to play a fence by pushing back stronger against China's unfair trade pact practices. Here's Catherine Tai testifying before the Senate Finance Committee earlier today. It is high time for us to turn the page on the old playbook with respect to China. That old playbook had us focused exclusively on changing China's behavior. We must now expand our work to um, include a strategy to vigorously defend our values and economic interests. The stern stance comes as Tai warns China has repeatedly refused to make real changes despite making commitments. She also tells senators that China isn't buying U.S. products as promised in the phase one trade deal. And to counter such a pattern, Tai says we can't just wait for China to change. Instead, the U.S. must make new strategic investments in key industries at home. 
And that includes passing the Bipartisan Innovation Act, which will allow more microchips to be made in America. And the Department of Justice on Wednesday unsealed charges against a Chinese citizen accused of spying on Americans as part of a repression campaign dubbed Operation Fox Hunt. He was allegedly acting on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. NTD's Chen Wu gives us the details. The Department of Justice on Wednesday unsealed charges against a Chinese national accused of working as an unregistered agent of the Chinese Communist regime. Sun Huoying is alleged to have spied on at least 35 individuals in the U.S. and relayed the information that he collected to the Chinese Communist Party from 2017 to 2022. Many of Sun's victims were American citizens of Chinese heritage who have been in the U.S. for years. He allegedly relied on private investigation firms and a New York law enforcement officer to conduct his covert activities. One of his victims, a pregnant woman, was forcibly detained for eight months while visiting China. Prosecutors said Sun's activities were part of Operation Fox Hunt, a CCP initiative begun in 2014 to forcibly repatriate Chinese dissidents and other alleged fugitives back to mainland China or coerce them into paying financial settlements to the regime. Sun is currently at large in mainland China. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson said in a statement that this case demonstrates once again the PRC's disdain for the rule of law and its efforts to coerce and intimidate those it targets on our shores. Earlier in March, the DOJ unsealed charges against five other men in three separate cases, all of whom were accused of extending the CCP's control to American soil. The charges come shortly after the Biden administration's controversial decision to terminate the China Initiative, a Trump-era anti-espionage campaign designed to thwart CCP spying in the U.S. The head of Britain's intelligence agency says that Russian President Putin has massively misjudged the situation in Ukraine. He noted poorly equipped Russian soldiers with low morale and said Putin's advisers are too scared to tell Putin the truth. On a visit to Australia, the spy chief also said that the close relationship between Russia and China might not last very long. NTD's Lorraine Ferrier brings us this report. The head of Britain's GCHQ intelligence agency said Russian President Putin's advisers are scared to tell him the truth about the progress of his Ukraine invasion. In a rare public address during a visit to Australia, Sir Jeremy Fleming said Putin had massively misjudged the situation. It's clear he's misjudged the resistance of the Ukrainian people. He underestimated the strength of the coalition his actions would galvanise. He underplayed the economic consequences of the sanctions regime. And he overestimated the abilities of his military to secure a rapid victory. Sir Jeremy said new intelligence showed Russian soldiers had low morale and were poorly equipped, sabotaged their own equipment and even accidentally shot down their own aircraft. And even though we believe Putin's advisers are afraid to tell him the truth, What's going on and the extent of these misjudgments must be crystal clear to the regime. He said what Putin had achieved was exactly what he was trying to avoid. A Ukraine with a renewed sense of nationhood, a more united NATO and a global coalition of nations that condemn his actions. But in any event, it all adds up to the strategic miscalculation that our leaders warned Putin it would be. It's become his personal war with the cost being paid by innocent people in Ukraine and increasingly by ordinary Russians too. In his address at the Australian National University in Canberra, Sir Jeremy said Putin has made a clear strategic choice to align with China as it grows more powerful in direct opposition to the United States. He said the Kremlin regards China in the current crisis as a supplier of weapons, a provider of technology, a market for its oil and gas, and a means to circumvent sanctions. He argued that Chinese regime leader Xi might think the close relationship with Moscow 
will help him oppose the US. Meanwhile, China can buy cheap hydrocarbons from Russia. But the spy chief warned there are risks for both sides in becoming too closely aligned. He said in the long term, some of Russia and China's interests might conflict and Russia could be squeezed out of the equation. And it's equally clear that a China that wants to set the rules of the road, the norms for a new global governance, is not well served by close alliance with a regime that willfully and illegally ignores them all. Lorraine Ferrier, NTD News. Nearly half of people believe going cashless would be problematic for them, according to a new study. The shift towards digital alternatives to physical money accelerated during the pandemic, with some shops refusing bills and coins and people shopping online more frequently. But going completely cashless comes with a number of serious risks. More on this from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. Going cashless has its benefits. You can quickly tap away with your card or phone, but it doesn't come without a price. According to a study by the Royal Society of Arts, getting rid of notes and coins could lead to spiralling debts and social isolation. The study found that one in five of people surveyed said they would struggle to cope in a cashless society. Nearly 50% said it would be problematic if there was no cash. I spoke to members of the British public to hear how they felt. I would regret that, actually. I don't think it's uh, the entire answer. There are many things where you just need a bit of cash. Of course there's the risk of having your phone taken, stolen. But otherwise, I mean, cash is just... They're, the dirty and you know I, I don't see any benefits with cash at all. There were questions on how it would affect generosity and charity. I think uh, lots of uh, homeless people obviously they deal in cash um, they get given change how would we be able to donate to, to people uh, walking through the streets. I think people tip less because obviously where um, it's contactless you don't have the option to then just add on a few extra pounds. One lady raised concerns about going cashless, comparing it to China's social credit system. Central government can obviously um, ultimately be in charge of, of that money. The move away from physical money also impacts businesses. For some, it's made things easier. From a logistical perspective, it makes it easier for us, contactless, especially during the pandemic. We were trying to avoid having too much contact with the customer. Um, so in that sense, it made it easier for us. So prior to the pandemic, we had a 50% share between cash and um, contactless. Now it's probably gone up to 90% card, contactless, and 10% cash. Others noted that going cashless adds expenses to their enterprise. On top of VAT, corporation tax and other business fees, contactless payment systems have an initial setup cost and they also take around 2% of the end product price. This affects small businesses the most. When we sometimes buy from a local farm, farmers market farmers, they want us to pay cash. So if we can't collect enough cash, we can't pay them uh, cash. And if we start paying them with card and with um, a direct debit, they, they would increase their price. I also spoke with Phil Reed, a professor of psychology at Swansea University. But there's always a risk when you put your eggs in one basket. If you have cash and you have cashless means of paying, you have a much broader range of behaviours you can engage in. You have much more control over your finances, and that's a good thing. Removing one or the other is a negative move. Reid said that cashless payments bring changes to the way people perceive money, and that this has dangers associated with it. We know that some people aren't very good with things like credit where they can't see the amount of money they're spending at any one time. And cashless payments have some of the same characteristics. Digital communication is associated with increased loneliness and increased anxiety. So any way in which we remove face-to-face -face real communication is going to increase loneliness. Reid said that physical money is a token, a symbol, and that it reminds people how much they're spending. It also gives people the chance to interact with others. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Monarch butterflies have seen a decline in their population in recent years, 
A Southern California city is now setting up a new garden to change that. The goal is to give the black and orange butterflies new places to make more fluttering families. NTD's Cynthia Kai has the story. Joining the effort to save the declining monarch butterfly population, city officials in Southern California's Laguna Beach authorized a second monarch butterfly and pollinator garden at Bluebird Park on Crest Street. The efforts come as research suggests the species could go extinct in two decades. After receiving a $5,000 grant from the nonprofit Monarch Joint Venture, the Pollinator Protection Fund of Laguna Beach will now plant the garden to give monarch butterflies another place to breed, lay eggs, and feed on milkweed. Um, our main focus is action and education. Um, action in terms of planting the right kinds of native milkweed and other native plants to improve the habitat of western monarch butterflies and education providing information and improving awareness so that more people plant monarch habitat anywhere they can in their gardens backyards and um, window boxes ford thanked city officials during the march 29th city council meeting mayor sue kempf also signed the national wildlife federation's mayor's monarch pledge a commitment to take action in preserving the monarch's population through these initiatives, the city of Laguna Beach is really showing itself to be truly engaged in the conservation effort for the Western monarch butterfly and other pollinators. Um, and with these specific actions, and now also with the Mayor's Monarch Pledge, this will encourage other municipalities to do their part as well. Last year, Laguna Beach established the city's first monarch butterfly and pollinator garden in Heisler Park. Really, you can do it in a very small, you can do it within a matter of, you know, 10 feet square even. Even a few milkweed plants will attract monarchs. Um, they're desperate to find places to lay their eggs. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the monarch butterfly population decreased by 84 percent over the past two decades and risks extinction in the next 20 years. Pat Flanagan, CEO of Butterfly Farms, told the Epic Times the monarch's declining population comes with increasing urbanization. He cited housing, pesticides, and a change in the weather that drives out native landscaping. Flanagan says these could be contributing factors, but no one really knows the exact cause of the butterfly's declining numbers. In 2020, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service listed the orange and black patterned butterfly as endangered or threatened under the Endangered Species Act. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.